Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past and present. And we'd also like to pay our respect to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands we are also recording this podcast and pay respect to their elders past and present. Great, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from, still, our bedrooms. I am your familiar stranger today, Andrew Fay, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Alex. Hello. Emma. Hi. And Mumta. Hi. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. So this week on the Familiar Strange, we have a new member of the Familiar Strange joining us, Emma. So Emma, we're going to cut across to you. We'd love to hear a bit about your background, your research, what you did in your PhD and what you're currently researching and what you're up to. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Emma Quilty. I am a postdoc at Monash University and I work in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab and I am a witchy anthropologist. So I've got to ask, witchy anthropologist, as you just enjoy a bit of witchcraft in your spare time or is this something you've actually studied? It's both. It's my spare time. It's my work time. I do witchcraft in my office, as you can see behind me. So a witchy anthropologist is someone who embodies and weaponizes the willful figure of the witch. So I like to blur the boundaries of my personal and professional identity to create new and wonderful ways of doing anthropology. And how do you do this? <laughs> what, how, does you, how do you weaponize witchcraft? I mean, are you casting hexes or...? I have. I have cast hexes before and there's actually a film of work? one of my... Yeah, there's a film of my hex on my website, emmaculty.com. Oh, I've got to check that out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I combined visual anthropology with a hex I cast on my ex. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> like, is... what, can, do we, can we know what you, like, hexed them with and how effective it was? Uh, it was just a general uh, ill and misfortune kind of hex that came from a place of... Uh, deep rage and even deeper pain. Um, the filming of the hex took place three days after we ended. He ended a six-year relationship, so it was it was it's a pretty intense film, and you can hear the pain in my voice as I'm kind of, uh, you know, annotating it over the top and explaining what the hex was. But the principle is based off of some very early European witchcraft around witch bottles. Um, so yes, please please tell us more about witch bottles. <laughs> so initially, they were hexes to ward off against magic and witchcraft, and to protect a household from witchcraft. But eventually, witches ended up using them in their practice, and contemporary witches play off of some of those older symbols. So they'll include things like 
hair, uh, rusty nails. Uh, in my own, I used uh, tarot cards. I used swamp water. I used water from the ocean and pomegranate that I bit into as if it was the heart of a still beating human man and spat it. So spit is another really important medium through which to cast it, the hex. Wow, that's um, this is like a very different take <laughs> on um, witchcraft to what maybe some of us are familiar with, you know, at least in a sort of a broad overview from undergraduate and whatnot. Uh, you know, the, the like OG kind of sources on witchcraft in anthropology being Marcel Mauss's study of magic and witchcraft and then E.E. E. Evans Pritchard. But this is like, you know, blowing all of that stuff. That's kind of like ancient history compared to what you're kind of doing. How do you feel doing anthropology of something that's like clearly so very personal to you? How, how do you feel when you kind of distend yourself from the personal side to take a like reflexive approach? Or, or have you got a completely different method to, you know, getting some kind of distance or objectivity or some descriptive distance to what you're practicing. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the hardest part of my PhD, right? It was coming back out of the field. For me, that was coming back out of Queensland, out of the middle of the woods, literally, from the witch camp that I had attended and trying to pull apart the things that I was witnessing and observing and experiencing in the young women around me and in myself. Because all of the, not the same experiences to the same extent, but similar lessons and reflections they were experiencing I was also experiencing as a young woman and as a young feminist so it was really 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 difficult uh, to do that and then coming into my kind of uh, years as an ECR and as a postdoc I've kind of thrown that out the window and just lent into that vulnerability and into that messiness and like I said just keep blurring the boundaries, right? Like My kind of follow-up question is I'm, I'm really sort of interested in, you know, the, the sort of conceptual or the theoretical side of how you reflect on witchcraft and your witchcraft practice. Because as I said, mm. you know, like many of us, if you just kind of do a sort of an overview anthropology study in your undergraduate, you cover, you know, those like kind of original type sources or very early sources like Mouse and uh, Evans Pritchard and whatnot but that's mm. you know that's like a whole different era of anthropology and it's also kind of coming from this perspective of uh, distant like practiced disbelief in the content of what it is that they're studying right so they're kind of coming at this from the perspective of rational atheists you know describing this sort of practices systematically but that's clearly not the way in which you're coming towards your practice of witchcraft what are the kind of ideas like what are the sort mm. of concepts that you're using to to talk about your practice yeah look I think there's so much great theoretical and conceptual work that was done in those early days like in Evans Pritchard's work and a lot later in Matthew Carey's work around around trust and I see myself as this kind of almost third generation uh, anthropologist in the field of witchcraft studies or the anthropology of witchcraft, as you will. So you've got your early days, you know, Mouse and Pritchards and all of their kind of work around conspiracy theories and kinship and trust, right? And then you've got later on this kind of almost tentative 
tiptoeing of like researching witchcraft in a more serious way and looking at the practices um, and the identities of those people and those communities. Um, because of all of that early work that was done by anthropologists like Tanya Lerman, like Lynn Hume, Douglas Ezzy, I've been able to really proudly and really loudly and really confidently step into what I identify as and what I do. So for me, tr I think trust is the most important kind of conceptual thread that has come out of my PhD work that has kind of threaded into the work that I'm doing now. That's like an interesting, like very kind of different perspective to take on things, right? Like the, the kind of classic anthropological approach is, as I sort of said before, you know, like one of a sort of a level of incredulity where you're kind of trying to explain these practices in terms of like more rationalized, you know, kind of ideas, right? So witchcraft is, you know, an aspect of social solidarity or it's, you know, there's like trust and kinship and all that kind of stuff. How do you kind of feel about it, witchcraft? Do you see it as a sort of a practice of knowledge making and truth making in a similar sort of way to anthropology or as a challenge to that kind of classical anthropological perspective? Yeah, so I see witchcraft as kind of my very early anthropology in a lot of ways. Witchcraft was my anthropology uh, growing up. Um, so growing up in between two cultures, in between Australian, like white Australia and Indo-Fijian culture, Witchcraft became the lens through which I was able to spiritually engage with those two practices, um, the monotheistic and the polytheistic, um, and then later found anthropology in all of its frameworks and theories. So that's my very early interpretation was this kind of knowledge making project. Now, as a witchy anthropologist, I see witchcraft as my practice of world changing of transformation. So witchcraft doesn't, and I don't think anthropology should accept the world as it is. I think it should actually be uh, interventional in a lot of ways. Um, just circling back to the question you asked before about concepts and distance in, in my work, my approach takes one of intimacy, I think, and vulnerability. And a lot of that came from my methodological approach, which lent heavily into embodiment and into emplacement. Those were kind of the two kind of key approaches that I took. So I really love what Paul Stoller has been writing about in sensory ethnography around uh, academia and anthropology's kind of bloodless prose. So my approach and what I've been writing about in terms of witchy anthropology is taking a really fleshy, bloody approach to my work and to my writing and now to my filmmaking as well. Can I ask what you mean by that? Because I think, you know, that mightn't be clear for everyone. What do you mean by bloodless or fleshy? Yeah, I think bloodless for me, when you pick up an academic text, and this is not unique to anthropology, um, and it hurts to read it. It's like uh, rubbing sandpaper in, in your eyes. Um, so making something that is creative and engaging and, and passionate, you can actually feel what the author is feeling through their work. So something, yeah, so quite felt. I think would be the word to describe it. Emma, I'm really interested about this this aspect of 
witchcraft becoming AI. Could you share a little more about that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So like I was saying before, some of the early studies into witchcraft, like Evans Pritchard's work or more recently Matthew Carey's study, they all look into the concept of trust through the prism of witchcraft. So my PhD research really kicked off this early interest in trust. And now I research trust in the context of emerging technologies. So I ask quite broad, but also weirdly specific questions like why should people trust self-driving cars? Why should people trust transitions to net zero? But um, Emma, if I could just probe a little further, like, how do you, how does gender get implicated in the process if you're using witchcraft as a lens? Because, you know, they've, it's sort of been inextricable when we talk about witchcraft, we're talking about vilifying mm. women to, to a large extent as well. And at least in the classical tradition of approaching witchcraft, how does that transform in the process of sort of adapting it, such as in the context of your work? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question because it has become a huge focus and the gender work and analysis I did earlier in my PhD work has become incredibly helpful because I've become incredibly critical of the global transport industry's vision of the future and their horizon of selves that they keep purporting to the world. So I'm in the process of developing a theory through the figure that I call Podman. Yeah. <laughs> what is Podman or who is Podman? So Podman is not a person. Just give me a second while I find my definition of him. So Podman is not a person. He's a figure. He's a horizon of identity. Podman or Homo Podius, which is made up, by the way. Uh, no. <laughs> not, la- not Latin. Podman embodies the transport industry's vision of the perfect neoliberal mobility subject, happily cocooned in his high-tech pod, zooming effortlessly through the world. To pull in Povinelli for a second here, but in one of her interviews, she talked about uh, her privilege of zooming around through the world through pneumatic tubes and reflecting on her privileges as a researcher as an anthropologist of being able to do that all over the world. And that is some of the work that I draw on now. So mobility justice work by Mimi Scheller, uh, more mobility work by John Urey, yep. uh, all about these kind of global elites who have this like insane level of mobility that they're able to capitalise on. But I've got to ask, from a theoretical perspective, like how has your work on witchcraft fed into your work on AI? H- has it at a fundamental level i mean are we talking jokes aside about hexes and things are are you really saying that the act of engaging with ai or the way we interact with ai is somehow analogous to casting spells or to engaging in witchcraft rites or what else how else are you talking about this Mm. so i wouldn't say quite that literally the connection's not quite there so it's more in terms of the theoretical and conceptual work that I did so like around trust around gender around embodiment around futures and future making but I do think that there's something to be said about yeah basically like new technologies are indistinguishable from from magic Mm. And not to gloss over or generalize like a huge amount of work being done in STS and AI studies, but a lot of this work around, you know, black box societies and transparency and trustworthiness uh, all kind of, you know, could be captured in that kind of that kind of metaphor of, of technology as a form of magic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was struck by 
you know, you don't know how true these things are when you catch them on the internet. But somebody had drawn a giant salt circle around a self-driving car, which locked it in because it thought it was a white line. Yes, um, I've, I've seen that video. I fucking loved that. I, I, I wish I could. I hope like, it's true. I, I want to recreate it. I want to I want to do like a pentagram or something like that and put put the self-driving car in the middle of it. Like, it's amazing. See, that kind of stuff, like that's, that's what I see my anthropology as this is kind of really performative and cheeky and playful and really like in your face like i love that okay i understand that new technology or the technology of the future is indistinguishable from magic i do get that but as we're approaching a world in which ai is being used more and more and even the people who make the ai don't understand how ai works that to me is intriguingly close to magic where programmers now train ais they don't exactly program them from the ground up they don't just like write lines and lines of code it's too much and so what stage as we go on and these things become more and more advanced is it just like yeah look we're tweaking this and we got the program to do its thing or we got the car to drive right we we don't understand how but we find if you know you press these three buttons in the right order and then you sing a little lullaby that makes sure it goes okay like are we heading to that world Again, more futurism than anthropology, but I do wonder. I mean, it fills me with existential dread and panic. For me, AIs, it's that old internet problem. Like the internet is the first thing that man has created that it doesn't quite understand. I see AI as the same thing and embodying the same issue. I know I come across as a bit of a negative Nancy, but it's important to move away from this kind of hypercritical perspective and really move towards creating something new and different and adding to the conversation like I know my podman paper is there to be like a very critical figure but I'm using him in other workshops and other contexts to use him as like a character to be broken down and then built back up again so doing kind of public workshops through Melbourne Design Week and Melbourne Knowledge Week with Tao Fan that she you know created and was running to get people's perspectives to kind of think about a future to think about their own futures rather than this kind of you know steady track and course that we've been on for the last hundred years with the automobile but to think about you know other ways of of being mobile so like cards that are filled with flowers right so emma i i was very taken by um, one of your comments earlier on when you were sharing about your work where you very freely unreservedly express the need to blur boundaries between the personal and professional you know on this dichotomy of the personal and the professional and and what the relationship is I thought maybe we could talk a little more about this I love this idea of ripping the mask off uh, of that professionalism and I in addition to being a witchy anthropologist I'm also a queer anthropologist I see these little instances and in queer intimacies I try and enact in anthropological spaces with other queer witchy coven anthropologists that I am friends with and I'm close with But for me, finding, you just made me remember how I uh, got over that, you know, that distance hump. I did try all of the traditional kind of note taking and and processing in, in, in my field notes and was still really struggling when I came back from the field to kind of start doing the analytic process. And it was through creating my own rituals that blurred anthropology and witchcraft together into this weird, queer, creature that was just like my own kind of practice that I was able to get past that if you want I can I can describe one of those yeah rituals. could you please share like what was your alternative to not taking for instance so 
It's still incorporated note-taking, but in a different sense. So in some witchcraft practices, this is not universal to all witches, but keeping a personal diary called a book of, uh, called a book of shadows uh, is common. It's something that I did when I was a teenager and I stopped doing uh, once I entered university and just didn't have the time between studies and working part-time, but I picked it up again. So in that slight reframe of what I was doing from a field notes to a book of shadows, I was able to jump over that little hurdle. But the trick was not just sitting down at my desk and doing that work. It was about creating that sacred space. It was about using symbols, whether those were candles or tarot cards or a circle of salt to create that demarcation of that space between the outside and the inner world, uh, where I was able to do that kind of almost trance-like work. You know when we talk about getting into a writing flow? Yeah. I kind of, I just, I just shifted it a little bit and did what I used to do to get into a trance state to get into flow state and my god did the analysis start flowing then once I figured that out in addition to like writing I also used voice memos as well Mm. Mm -hmm. lots of anthros use voice memos these days which is supposed to be really good and yet I'm still stuck and I have the worst handwriting in the world, still stuck in physical note-taking. There's something for me, something about just the physical writing down. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, and I think voice memos also become that additional chore of it's yet more transcribing. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's something that I would try to avoid at all costs. <laughs> yeah, because when, when you were talking about using embodiment, I was curious about how you eventually presented that. I, I was wondering maybe if you showed that like sort of not in written text form but in some other sort of a more dynamic form uh, that would maybe be a much more vivid description of what you went through. So the film that I mentioned the short film but I also at the AAS in 2019 I think uh, instead of presenting on ritual like I was talking about before I was talking about rituals and I was talking about the everyday rituals that young witches do in their homes and the kind of altars that they create instead of talking about it my coven the coven that I'm a part of through the AAS we just got together and we did a ritual during the panel which was very cool yeah it was kind of a spontaneous performance piece like (laughs) not not planned not coordinated we figured it out on the day. Someone grabbed a bottle of water. Someone had a shell that they got on the beach in cans. Like it was very, and, and kind of great in that yeah. way, right? Like it was, it was, you know, spontaneous. It was DIY punk witchcraft. Like I loved <laughs> Something that just kind of like stood out in what you were just sort of saying to me. How do you think about the sort of intersection of your witchcraft practice with this sort of reality that we're in, you know, the settler colonial reality and the intersection with, First Nations, Indigenous people, their practices and, you know, like how your witchcraft practice is kind of supporting, coming up against, intersecting with all of those sort of ideas. So just first, I'm just going to speak a little bit about my PhD research and some of the reflections I have on fieldwork I did, like around these kind of topics. Like I mentioned before, the tradition that I researched was called Reclaiming Witchcraft. Uh, So I looked at the Australian branch and it is located in other places like around the world, in America, in the UK. And in a lot of ways, I'm seeing witchcraft and and more broadly paganism kind of maturing around these conversations. Um, Like, I don't know if you guys have seen anything around like the use of sage uh, in practices and criticisms that, you know, 
a lot of New Age practices were basically just appropriations of, of Native American culture and sage was one of them. And these kind of New Agey aftertastes have ended up in a lot of witchcraft practices and are still available in a lot of witchcraft stores. There are some stores that will will not engage with them and will only stock what they perceive as to be ethically sourced like spell casting ingredients. So white sage is something that I've never used because I, I just never liked the smell. But it is something that like me on a personal level and also just reflect, reflecting on what's happening in like broader conversations around witchcraft that are happening. I'm part of the Decolonize uh, Reclaiming Witchcraft online group. Um, so they're the group that call attention to issues like uh, calling deities on Australia, on on Indigenous Australian land that are not a part of um, uh, this, uh, what's it called, uh, cosmology. So like Kalima, a Hindu goddess. So it's not appropriate to invoke her on this land. But then what does that mean for a lot of migrant communities? Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, for whom there may be religious practices associated with that. I mean, of course, the line between witchcraft and religion is perhaps uh not as easy to demarcate as some religions would like to Mm. believe but yeah does that not does that mean they just don't get to follow their beliefs it's tricky this is a kind of countercultural, spiritual lived religion trying to navigate all of these questions and issues and conversations and do the right thing and in some cases that's just not that just comes down to not doing it. Like, I think the theme of the last witch camp was mushrooms. I've also stopped invoking gods. Like, I don't I don't work... Well, I, I never really liked working with gods either. I much prefer uh, ancestral witchcraft, so calling on my ancestors that don't get a lot of look-in in an Australian context. So behind me, I have a picture of Jungle Mama. So it's a depiction of a... Uh, Indian, a southern Indian woman riding through the jungle on the back of a tiger. She's completely naked and she's breastfeeding a tiger cub. So I see it as this kind of like manifestation creating yourself through yourself. And then underneath that, I have a picture of my great grandmother. So my family are uh, Indo Fijian, so South Indian from Kerala. So post slave trade, the British Empire still needed people to work on cotton and sugar plantations. So there was the indentured servants, all the coolie generation. So my family are from the coolie generation that were taken from South India to Haiti, to Gioana and also to Fiji. So my mum grew up in Fiji. She immigrated here uh, when she was 17 to Australia in the 80s because she's a fucking boss. So I like having these pictures around me because it's a—it's not just a celebration of my heritage and who I am, but it's also a reminder that I'm the first generation of women in that family to go to university um, and to get a PhD. Well, thanks so much to Emma, our new familiar stranger, for being the subject of this week's The Familiar Strange Centrefold. It's been really great having you on. So that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Emma, Alex and Mumta. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. And me, your host, Andy. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page. 
patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange, not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram music by pete dabro special thanks to nick farrelly will grant martin pierce and maud rowe thanks for listening and until next time keep talking strange